Hello and welcome to episode 57 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture and politics. I'm Peter Lim. And I'm Peter Alagi. We are joined today by two people who've spent a lifetime working for African liberation. One in South Africa, where he was with Nelson Mandela on Robben Island for many years. The other in the United States in solidarity with such struggles. Eddie Daniels is the author of There and Back, Robben Island, 1964-79, published by Mayabuye Books in Cape Town in 1998, with two subsequent enlarged editions. Born in 1928 in historic District 6 in Cape Town, where apartheid ran havoc, he became active in opposing apartheid, first in the Liberal Party of South Africa and then the African Resistance Movement. The apartheid regime hit back and he was banned, detained and sent to join the distinguished company of other Robben Island political (coughs) prisoners for 15 years. Chris Root was associate director of the Washington Office on Africa from 1972 to 81, working on diverse campaigns such as sanctions versus Rhodesia and to end CIA intervention in Angola and trade with apartheid South Africa. She has long been active in the Association of Concerned African Scholars and has been a research fellow at the University of Durban Westville and at the African Studies Centre, History Department and Matrix at Michigan State University. She has a master's from the American University and has published on international education and the environment in Durban. She also managed two great websites which are hosted by our gracious hosts, Matrix, and those websites are the African Activist Archive at africanactivist.msu.edu and South Africa Overcoming Apartheid at www.overcomingapartheid.msu.edu. A very warm welcome to Eddie Daniels and Chris Root. It's nice to be here. Nice to be here. Thank you for the invitation. <clears throat> Eddie, let's start with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe just something very basic. Is what was it like? What was it like living under apartheid? Well, we were black. It was so good. And uh, you see, initially before apartheid, we had segregation, which was kind of a mild form of apartheid. When apartheid came into vogue, law, the uh, the um, discrimination became hard and became brutal and uh, even barbaric. As a young man growing up in this grim context, uh, Eddie, you were in Cape Town in District 6. Uh, you did a lot of different jobs. In your memoir, you talk about working as a photographer. and. Uh, Part of your job was to take photographs of people uh, who wanted to pass as white. Can you tell us about this experience? Yeah, okay. So I, <clears throat> I, I had a lot of jobs, of course, menial jobs, because I had a very poor education. So I fell from pillar to post trying to improve myself and through other jobs until eventually I became a photographer, one of my many jobs. Now, in 55, 56, the government passed a law saying that everybody must have an ID document, uh, uh, the identification document, 
and, uh, and not Africans. All non-Africans must have identification documents. And uh, so because I was a photographer, people came to me and uh, the so-called so colored people who were fair, they came to me and they asked me, please make my photos fair so that they become white. <clears throat> Africans came to me and said, please make my photos fair so that I could become so-called colored. Now, it may sound very petty and foolish that uh, people uh, are trying to improve their social status in this manner. But to those people involved, it wasn't petty. It wasn't futile. It was a matter of life and death. If you became a white citizen in South Africa during the apartheid era, you, had, you were the most privileged citizen in all the world. You had everything at your disposal. You had your, your mountains, your beaches, your parks, your benches, your universities, your schools, everything was the best. And you had social status. And you could spit on an African or push him off the pavement or insult him in any way without any repercussions. <clears throat> but if you were an African, you had to have the pass and uh, you are not, in, not allowed into the urban areas unless you produce a legal pass. Failing that, you are arrested, or the police may uh, deal out punishment on the spot and beat you up, as the case may be. So uh, the, the South African government had created 10 um, uh, Bantu stands. It's supposed to be states within the African uh, sphere. And uh, each Bantustan, each or each country is supposed to be, they uh, would uh, set up for a particular tribe. But these Bantustans were too small to accommodate the citizens of those so-called uh, countries. And they would be forced to be in the urban area illegally. The men, would be in the urban area, illegally, forced to. They come to, in any case, they come to the urban areas looking for work. They're desperately poor and uh, desperate for a job, any job. So they come and they work at the buildings, throwing up bricks, etc. Then, uh, and their wives would also be in the, in the urban area with their babies. In the night, those men will sleep in the forests. And the wives, because they want to be with their husbands, would also sleep in the forest with their babies. And when the babies cry, the other men says, tell the ladies, go away, go away with your babies. Your babies are going to draw the police to us. And the ladies go away. They go out into the night. They carry the danger with them. Ladies are tremendous very courageous, very brave, and I, 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 I salute them. I pay tribute to the ladies. In my book, There and Back, I state, there's a chapter titled, uh, A Tribute to the Woman in the Struggle. And I say, and the woman paid a heavy price in apartheid. They played a wonderful role, a courageous role, rearing their children under very difficult conditions. And, um, and, the, um, and um, the, I have a chapter there called A Tribute to the Woman in the Struggle. 
And uh, I say, I state there that men's deeds are always acknowledged. Ladies' deeds are often overlooked. In Long Walk to Freedom, your comrade and friend Nelson Mandela writes that he, quote, had no epiphany, no singular revelation, no moment of truth, but a steady accumulation of a thousand slights, a thousand indignities, end quote, that inspired him to devote his life to the liberation of all South Africans. What inspired your activism? You know, one is born into a system. You accept the system because you're born into it. But as time goes by, you start asking questions. You start asking questions. And you see the unfairness of the system. You see all the whites, they drive cars, they own our homes, they got all the responsible jobs, and uh, the blacks, God-fearing, law-abiding people, not all of them, but many of them, and uh, they got jobs, but with no responsibility. They ride at the bottom. One day I was standing in the corner shop, and the police van drew up a white policeman, and the passenger policeman would get out with his blue uniform, very look very charming, gun at his, uh, his side, and he walks into the shop and he throws a greeting to the uh, owner of the shop and he walks to the flap which separates the customer from the goods behind the counter and he walks and he goes behind the counter. The shopkeeper is cowering in the corner and he goes and he helps himself to cigarettes, to biscuits, to chocolates and he walks out. He gets into the van, he goes to the next shop. And I told myself, I says, if a poor man comes into the shop and is a half a cent short of a loaf of bread, he's chased away. But these policemen in their beautiful outfits, they're stealing from this man, stealing, and, uh, and they get away with it. There was one man who I admired, <clears throat> he used to sell dried fruit, and uh, the policeman came into his shop and they just helped themselves and he said, you pay. You pay for what you take. Shortly afterwards, the shop was closed. I do not know why. Maybe to do with licenses, but he lost his he lost his shop. That other just another small point. I don't know whether you consider it worthwhile. <clears throat> I was a little boy, and on the corner of Hanover Street, which is our main street in Lamondale, <clears throat> I was there, and this little old man. <clears throat> bent, poor clothing, broken shoes, and he's got a little brown paper packet. And he's walking along and these about seven, six, seven gangsters come along and they take the old man's food away from him. And then the old man says, please, please, you know, we found out his food later when, they, uh, when the gangsters took it out of the packet. He says, please, please, give my food back, it's all I've got. And they laughed at him. They stood in a row on the pavement, and, and the old man spoke to the one. He says, please give my food back. He says, I haven't got it. He's got it. They passed it behind their backs to the next person, and uh, they make a fool of the old man. And you get the fauners laughing because you want to be on the good side of the gangsters, and my stomach is starting to curdle. And, um, and then the policeman comes up on his bicycle again. There's a white policeman on his bicycle. And the old man very courageously 
He steps from the from the gutter where he was standing, uh, talking to the gangsters. Steps back, <coughs> stops the policeman. Policeman gets off his bicycle, stops his bicycle, and the old man says, "These people have taken my food." The policeman says, he looks at the gangsters, and he looks at the old man, and perhaps he thought discretion was a better part of valor, and he tells the old man in Afrikaans, "Who is drunk?" Me or you, get out of the way! And drove on, cycled on, and the old man's head just dropped. Just dropped, turned around, and he just walked. Just walked with his broken shoes and his uh, broken clothes. He was utterly defeated by these gangsters. And then they were laughing, then they took the food and they put it on the little... Uh, um, kind of a, a shelter a boundary there uh, on the counter on the side of the shop and they put the, the packets there and they laughed, walked away and some of the foreigners also laughed. Disgrace. Those are the things that made me, that urged me to go, you know, and the scully menace itself, the gangster menace itself and um, those are the things that drove me to try and rectify what was wrong you know, in my own small way. I'd like to bring Chris in here and, uh, and, and make some mm. connections as well. And uh, well, of course, Eddie, you then got involved in politics, as I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, you finished up on Robben Island with Nelson Mandela, Madiba, and other political prisoners. And um, there were movements of solidarity with the prisoners, with you, with Mandela and others. And um, part of that solidarity is exemplified in the anti-apartheid movements here yeah. in the United States. And yeah, Chris, yeah. You, uh. you worked for the Washington office on Africa and elsewhere in solidarity, with, in a way, with people like Eddie. Could you explain how, how you, for, from your point of view, got involved and what were some of the highlights of these campaigns and, and the people with whom you worked? I got involved originally when I was in college out of concern about um, racism. I mean, I, my first learnings were about racism in the United States and then it was very natural to become concerned about South Africa as well. And there were really a lot of campaigns that people undertook in order to raise the issue of South Africa broadly. You know, it wasn't that each individual campaign by itself had a big impact, but it was a way of raising the issues and bringing more people into them. So I started with divestment work on campus at Oberlin, then I went to Washington, as you said, for about a decade, and um, worked at the Washington Office on Africa, which was um, supported by quite a number of religious organizations and several unions. So we worked with a lot of those constituencies on US policy campaigns. And then I kept working on local uh, campaigns as well. There was a campaign in the mid-50s against Riggs National Bank in Washington, D.C. because of not only its loans to South Africa, but also its loans to Chile, and um, because of its um, discrimination in employment and its not making loans to black neighborhoods in Washington. And then when I moved to Michigan in 1985, I had the uh, good fortune of working for two years in the Michigan State Legislature where there was a state employee's pension fund divestment bill 
um, that I worked on with Representatives Virgil Smith and Perry Bullard and Lynn Jondahl that we were able to pass. Um, so there were you know, quite a different uh, number of types of activities, most of them either <coughs> anti-corporate or um, U.S. policy focused to help raise the issue of South Africa with people. And well, staying on this uh, theme of solidarity, um, and coming back to Eddie, uh, w what about the liberation movement solidarity between uh, the prisoners and the people outside when you were there on the island, on Robben Island? I recently actually read an article of yours in a Namibian magazine on Ndimba Toivo Yatoivo, whom I was fortunate to meet in 1987 at a UN conference and I know you have some marvelous stories about your times with both Nelson Mandela and Toivo. Uh, what about this liberation movement solidarity say between South Africans and Namibians? How did that play out on Robben Island? Well the solidarity between the Namibians and, uh, and uh, fellow prisoners <coughs> was that um, the Namibians were handled very brutally when they came to Robben mm. Island. Mm. And, uh, you know, the, we, we had brutal orders, but they were more, more brutal to the Namibians. And they would beat up the Namibians on the slightest pretext. And we all went on hunger strike. And uh, until they, they stopped that. And uh, then Andimba, who was then the leader of the Namibians there, he was removed from them and he was brought to our section. Uh, we were, of course, only 30 of us in our section, you know. And so that was a form of solidarity we, we, we showed. The Namibians were very good people, very brave people, and they were dedicated to the struggle. If I may go on to solidarity outside prison, <clears throat> I'd like to thank Chris and all the people she had represented, and I would thank the world for what they did for us. Without world support, we'd still be fighting. We, the liberation movement, on our own, we were weak. We were relatively weak. The government, apartheid government, was powerful. They were highly trained, highly skilled, and they were fanatical. <clears throat> but the world came to our rescue. Possibly South Africa, is the only country in human history in which the whole world supported part of a population in a particular country against another part of the country of the, of the, uh, the another part of the population in the same country <clears throat> the whole world supported us <clears throat> in the united states of america people went to jail on our behalf they do not know us. They went to jail. They struggled on our behalf. They risked uh, life and limb on our behalf. And they organized on our behalf. We all know about the great role played by the universities of, of the USA, <clears throat> where they refused to invest with banks who continually to, to operate with South Africa. In New Zealand, people were fighting on the rugby fields on our behalf. They did not know us. They risk life and limb on our behalf. People were good to us. In Britain, people refused to buy fruit and wine from South Africa. Declared himself towards the end of the apartheid days, he said, 
there'll come a time when we won't be able to sell, export one orange, one bottle of wine. The Defense and Aid Fund was tremendous, tremendous. They sent us millions of pounds from 1956, a treason trial, through to 1990. They paid for my defense. They paid for many other people's defense. They helped to feed the people in the townships. And, um, and uh, the Defense and Aid Fund was such a thorn in the flesh of the apartheid government that they banned the, the Defense and Aid Fund. But money still came through, came via uh, lawyers, it came via uh, uh, trusted people, etc. We owe a debt to the world. South Africa is today the economic engine of Africa. Thanks to the world, we are indebted to the world. Uh, what about the human side of life on Robben Island with, with Mandela, with uh, Toivo Yotoivo? I know you've got some wonderful stories that you recount in your book here. And uh, one of them that springs to mind is how you, how you got the news and also, I, I think also that Mandela used to play chess with Toivo. Yes. Well, I, actually on that point, at the big public gathering, Toivo got onto the, on the uh, platform and he said, Mandela used to torture me in prison. <laughs> and everybody was hushed, wondering what's, what's happened. And uh, uh, Toivo said, it took the whole day to make one chess move. <laughs> <laughs> that brought the house down. But the story, which is close to my heart, an incident which I'm sure Ms. Mandela may have forgotten by now. But I was the only person of my organization to be in jail on Robben Island. That was the Liberal Party. Yes, I represented the Liberal Party of South Africa. I was asked by all organizations to become a member of the organizations. I said, no, I owe loyalty to my own organization, even though my organization had dissolved. When I was questioned by those who were anti-white, uh, you haven't got an organization, I said, the Communist Party has gone underground, the ANC has gone underground, the PAC has gone underground, the Liberal Party has gone underground, and I represent them. So, um, over time, as I was saying, you know, we were, we, our conditions improved from bad to better all the time because of world pressure. One day, Mr. Mandela was working at the quarry, and uh, this is now uh, uh, quite a little while after we've all been arrested. And Mr. Mandela came back from the quarry and he said, Where's Danny? I haven't seen Danny. Danny's me. And someone told him Danny's lying on his floor in his cell, he's sick. We were not allowed to go to the hospital. We were banned from the hospital. We, we couldn't meet anybody or see anybody else, uh, any other prisoner. So Ms. Mandela came to my cell. Now his, his uh, cell was on the far end of the corridor where the entrance uh, is and my cell was way up. So he walked right past his cell, he came all the way up to me, and he came into my cell, he sat on the floor, and he comforted me. He was then locked up in his cell, single cell, and I was locked away in my cell, single cell. The next morning, 
Mr. Mandela came up the corridor carrying his bucket. We had no uh, flush toilets in our cells. Carrying his bucket, came into my cell, put his bucket on the floor, sat down next to me, and again he comforted me. Then he got up, picked up his bucket in his one arm, picked up my bucket on his other arm, and he went to the common toilet in the yard, emptied the contents, cleaned my bucket, and brought my bucket back to me. I had to put the story into context. Mr. Nelson Mandela, an international figure, a leader, the leader of the most powerful organization fighting the apartheid government, most important prisoner in South Africa. He could have instructed any of his members go and look after Danny. He could have looked the other way. He was under no obligation to help me. Yet he came to help me. He came down to my level in more ways than one. Who was I? I was an identity. I was the only prisoner of my, of my organization on Robben Island. I had no political muscle. I had no muscle of any kind. I had no education. This man, he came to help me. Why did he come and help me? He came to help me because he's such a magnanimous person. Hmm. I've got a tremendous admiration for Nelson Mandela. To my mind, he's the greatest of the greatest. Chris, I'd like to come back and ask you about your recent work, which in many ways is informing uh, younger generations about these sorts of solidarity struggles that Eddie, you were involved in. And um, when recalling the anti-apartheid movement, we sometimes think only of these big names. And yet, when I've been reading through some of this rich and growing collection, the African Activist Archive, that you and Richard mm. Knight in New York and Dave Wiley have been working on, for a number of years now, I constantly see references to the ordinary foot soldiers of the movement and Mandela himself always emphasised that he was only one soldier in a big army. Um, and Eddie has also emphasised this grassroots force. So tell us a little bit about this African activist archive. It's a, it's a lovely term and how, uh, how did it start? What are its aims and what does it consist of? There is a website with an online archive that is now 4,500 items. Uh, it's documents, t-shirts, photographs, posters, buttons, audio and video interviews and clips. And it's all documenting the U.S. solidarity movement in Africa. A lot of it is Southern Africa focused, and a lot of that is South Africa, but it's in fact broader. And uh, it really, uh, started when Richard Knight, who had been on the staff of the American Committee on Africa and was one of the people in that organization who uh, was in touch with a lot of local organizers, um, he really felt a commitment to try to preserve the materials of local activists. Um, many local activists worked uh, for organizations that were very informal. People just came together to do what they believed needed to be done. And so that material is pretty vulnerable for being lost. Mm. And we have really been thrilled that uh, 85 people have worked with us. Um, some of them donating collections to the MSU library here, other people lending us materials or digitizing photographs. Um, and 
national organizations will take care of themselves in a way. You know, they're going to have their own archives. They have staff. They can handle it. But uh, we've been able to collect material from 35 states, from more than 250 organizations across the U.S. Um, to so that people can learn about the kinds of activities uh, that people were involved in to build a movement that over decades, literally, really starting in the mm. mid-1950s at the time of the defiance campaign in South Africa, built to, um, you know, through the time of uh, democracy being achieved in South Africa. And we've got a contact form on the website. We're delighted to hear from more people who'd like to contribute. <coughs> now, coming back to Eddie and connecting these uh, threads, uh, on the one hand, the international solidarity, uh, on the other hand, the internal solidarity of people both in prison and also within South Africa struggling against the apartheid regime. What did it mean to you to have people overseas uh, giving you support? Tremendous. Tremendous. They're all angels in disguise. <laughs> you know, these people did not know us. They went out of their way. Chris is a beautiful example. I wish you could see her. And a beautiful example of, of uh, being a representative of some of these organizations. We went to jail. The conditions were bad. We were locked up in uh, single cells for 24 hours, 23 hours of the day. Often exercise the morning, often exercise the, uh, the afternoon. All we had in our, in our cells was three stinking blankets, a mat, and a bucket. That's all we had. And for some time, we were in this position. <clears throat> then, the, um, uh, then it improved. As I said, eventually we worked in the quarry, which gave us uh, a bit of elbow room. But I owe a personal thank you to the world. I went to jail with no education. I was illiterate. Meager education of standard six. 25 years ago I had left, or 30 years ago I had left school. And uh, well, we couldn't afford, my mother couldn't afford to, to uh, pay the schools at night fee, at uh, the uh, night school. So I, I couldn't bear it. And, but world pressure, world pressure encouraged the apartheid authorities to allow us to study. What a boon it was. It was a boon. The world opened to me, as an illiterate person. The world opened, and uh, uh, Shakespeare to me was a voyage of discovery. I felt so rich, so rich, getting this this knowledge, etc. And I, uh, I earned two degrees, and a BA and a BCom, with the help of my fellow uh, prisoners. I helped people who were absolutely illiterate. We had the Bible, and I helped them to, to read and write, and others helped me to read and write. <clears throat> so I earned two degrees, but in, as in a later moment, I say I earned three degrees, and my first degree was my third degree, and that I got from security police. In many ways, 
Robben Island was the university of the struggle. Yes. As people uh, often remember. Oh, yes, it and was. of course the graduates of that university uh, went on to do great things. Mandela became the first democratically elected president of South Africa and many others are in position of, of tremendous influence one, and power. One, one of them is, uh, is deputy uh, judge of the constitutional court. And uh, of course uh, Jacob Zuma is the current uh, yeah. president. Yeah. Uh, so, just to, to bring this uh, perhaps to a close, uh, Ahmed Kadrada uh, once described South Africa after apartheid as two steps forward and one step backward. Uh, how would you describe the country of South Africa today? Three steps forward, two steps backward. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, you know, we all fought in the early years for South Africa. We did not even think that we would see the end of apartheid. The granite wall was tremendously powerful. And, but we fought for values, values of uh, justice, of human dignity, of uh, integrity. That was, that was, and we were prepared to die for that. And, uh, but the world came to our rescue and so Mandela was still around, I'm still around, we would have been dead otherwise. And uh, so we've come a long way from the apartheid era, and we have had changes, but unfortunately our changes are being undermined by heavy corruption in my country. And uh, it breaks my heart when I see how money is wasted, how people flaunt their new, new wealth, which they have, uh, and Becky's brother, uh, Moletzi, I think it's Moletzi, he was stating there on a talk show on the radio, saying that 10 years ago, many of these people had no money. Today, they're multimillionaires. Where did they get the money from? We must investigate. And those who are suddenly rich, they, they, they flaunt their money. And it really it makes me feel so sad when I think of the little old lady in the townships or in the rural areas. She has to go into the bush to relieve herself, girls have to go into the bush, the gangsters lay in wait to rape them, etc. All because the money which could be used to uplift them, to give them a decent home and a decent life, is being uh, uh, wasted by people with big parties and big houses and big limousines, and uh, it, it makes me sick. Well, it's a reminder then with, with, with so much, a reminder of so much economic inequality and with wars bursting around our heads that as we think back and develop these online repositories of, of, of previous days solidarities that maybe we should be uh, drawing the lessons from these crucial s struggles of yesterday and looking to build reciprocal solidarities today and tomorrow. Thank you, Eddie Daniels and Chris Root, for talking to Africa, past and present. Thank you. Africa, past and present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington, Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G.
Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.